Walters is open for every U.S. Women's World Cup match, including this Sunday morning's 5 a.m. start. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We put a pretty aggressive price on, on Lane, and, uh, and you know, it was something we had several conversations with teams uh, early on in the day, and uh, you know, none of them came for, through fruition. And uh, Finnegan, there was a lot of action on Finnegan, and again, didn't meet, you know, none of them met the uh, uh, the bar that we uh, that we put on him. And uh, and uh, you know, those those are two guys that we we feel very very good about. We're very high on both of them. You know, they're good players, but but more more importantly, they're they're great guys in the clubhouse leaders in the clubhouse. They both become leaders in the clubhouse. Finnegan has helped a lot of those guys in the bullpen. And uh, when you're building a young foundation uh, like we are here, uh, you've got to sprinkle in some good some good veteran players. And, uh, and those two guys are two good players. Lane's a good young veteran player that's just coming into his own. And uh, and we felt that we just had never re- reached uh, the bar that we that we set for, uh, for each player. Three balls, two strikes. Gray to the plate. Swinging a line drive, right field, base hit. Coming in to score, Monasterio. Terang trying to score. Thomas's throw on two hops is offline. Milwaukee leads 5-3. to Two-run single for Joey Weimer on the 10th pitch of the at-bat. And Gray has surrendered four runs here in the top of the fourth. And welcome to Nat Chat for Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. So this day of August 2nd, 2023 is the one-year anniversary of the Nats trading outfielder Juan Soto to the San Diego Padres. So that Soto trade happened on the day of the 2022 MLB trade deadline. We on Tuesday had the 2023 MLB trade deadline. The Nats did not make another trade. So their only trade leading up to this year's deadline ended up being Monday evening's trade of Jamer Candelario to the Chicago Cubs for two prospects. And so now we begin the rest of the Nats season. And uh, we on Tuesday night did have a Nats loss, a uh, 6-4 loss to the Milwaukee Brewers at Nationals Park in game two of a three-game series. The Nats fell to 45-63. and So there will not be a 100-win season for the Nats this season. If you were wondering about that, the best that uh, the Nats now can do is 99 and 63. Mark, we now are exactly two-thirds of the way into this Nats regular season, 108 games down, 54 to go. Who knows how these remaining 54 games will go, but we do know 
that these games are set to include the likes of Lane Thomas and Kyle Finnegan. Just one trade by the Nats leading up to this trade deadline. Yeah, and I'm not surprised by that. I think as we've been talking all week, previewing this, the feeling was Candelario was pretty much a sure thing to go, and anything beyond that was possible, but probably not likely. And that's exactly what happened. Mike Rizzo said he listened to offers on those guys, especially Lane Thomas and Kyle Finnegan. The bar was high, I think rightfully so. Nobody was willing to meet that asking price. And so those guys are still here. And I think the interesting question to ask, and I did ask both Rizzo and Davey Martinez versions of this question, is that by keeping them now, are you sort of sending a message to them and to everybody that not only are they here for the rest of this year, but they can actually be a part of an eventual winning team a couple of years down the road. They're both under contract or under club control through 2025. And both of them gave answers that suggested they do believe that. Now, we know how things can change. We know that a year from now, when the trade deadline comes, they could be in a position and get an offer for one of those two or both of them that ends up wanting them you know, to make the move. But I do think some of this, it's not just about what the asking price was, but was also a belief particularly in those two players, that they can be a part of the next winning team here. And I do sense that they believe, whether it's right or wrong, that this can be a winning team by 2025. Well, I think the beauty of Lane Thomas and Kyle Finnegan always was you didn't have to trade them this year. Like there wasn't this pressure to trade them. Like with Jamer Candelario, he's about to be a free agent. You needed to trade him. With Thomas and Finnegan, I mean, you could always trade them next season. You could do it, you know, after that. Like it's not like you had to do it this year. And so if you do like the players, and I think it's pretty clear Mike Rizzo likes these guys, and you think that they could be pieces, unless you get overwhelmed, don't just give them away. I mean, you might as well hold on to them and kind of see what you got. But yeah, I mean, things can change. Outlooks can change. I mean, I mentioned Juan Soto. It was like just a few weeks before the Nats traded Juan Soto that Mike Rizzo swore that the Nats would not be trading Juan Soto. So, you know, Rizzo can say whatever he wants. And I think right now in this moment in time, I'm not saying that he's lying. He probably believes what he's saying, but, you know, (laughs) subject to change. You know how in uh, combat sports, they'll have that little thing at the bottom of the screen, card subject to change, outlook subject to change when it comes to to how the Nats view these guys. But yeah, I mean, the real shame of this season, and you know, I put shame in quotation marks, it's not that big of a deal really, but it's that guys like Corey Dickerson and Dominic Smith weren't better. Trevor Williams hasn't been better. Patrick Corbin hasn't been better. Those were the guys who you really were eyeing as hopeful trade chips for this Nats team this season. And with the exception of Jamer Candelario, those guys have not delivered, you know, to varying extents for various reasons. That's the shame to whatever degree those guys could have ever brought back something. But yeah, with Thomas and Finnegan, it was always kind of like they're out there. It's possible they get dealt, but you never had to deal them. And that's always a good position to be in from a club perspective. Like it's not good when you have to do something and the Nats didn't have to do something. And so Mike could, you know, command a sizable price for each guy. Yeah. And, you know, the rest of baseball knows when you have to do something and they're going to react accordingly. If you are desperate or if you've made it clear that, hey, we are trading this guy because he's disgruntled or no good or whatever the reason might be, other teams know that and they know they have the upper hand in that negotiation. And as you know, Al, it's all about hand. Who has hand in the relationship? So I think Mike Rizzo had hand in this trade negotiation period with pretty much all of those players. The other thing I'd add, And we'll never know the answer to this, but if Hunter Harvey and Carl Edwards were healthy and you had all three of those relievers pitching seven, eight, nine, 
Would he have moved any of them? Probably Carl Edwards, we think, because he is in a contract year. But maybe he would have been more inclined to listen or accept an offer for Finnegan or Harvey, knowing that he had another one as well. But at the moment, Finnegan's the only healthy one. And I know you're going to say this isn't just about you know who's available for you the rest of the year. If you have an offer for Finnegan, you move him no matter what the state of your bullpen is. But I think in the back of your mind, you are thinking a little bit about that yeah, Hunter Harvey should be okay, but we know his history. We don't know for sure. Right now, they have one reliever that they have any real faith in, not just this year, but moving forward, and that's Kyle Finnegan. And so why move him unless you really are overwhelmed by an offer? I do think with Hunter Harvey, and you know, I said this weeks back, but he cannot be trusted to stay healthy. And so next year, if he's going well, I think you aggressively try to move him next year. And unless you're doing well and, and the Nats are like on the fringes of wildcard contention, let's say. I think with Harvey, this year like perfectly illustrates him. He's really talented. When he's going good, he can be going really good, but you just cannot trust him to stay healthy. And so, you know, if you're playing the trade ship game next year, I, I think you got to look at Harvey as if he's going all right and you get something decent for him in terms of an offer, you got to be open to dealing him. You can't do this thing of like, well, he could be a piece or like, well, he could be someone who's here when we're good again. You don't know if like tomorrow he's going to be healthy with the way that he is. So I think that's going to be interesting. If Harvey is a part of this thing next season, how do the Nats manage Harvey? How do they treat him regarding the trade deadline of next year? Yeah, I think that's perfectly fair. I mean, I'm fascinated to see if and when he comes back, how he does the rest of this year. Is he just pick right up where he left off and he's good the rest of the year pitching every other day or are there more issues? So yeah, knowing the history there, you can't, as much as you'd like to, you can't count on him being a part of this moving forward. I do think they count on Finnegan. He's now built up a pretty good volume of work to suggest that he is a good major league reliever and really durable And yeah, he's 31 and you don't know for sure and the relievers are so volatile, but at a position that is so volatile, he's about as consistent and as durable as they get. And so you hope there are two more good years from him and that they can be meaningful two years and not just a stopgap until the team is better enough and, and goes and get others relievers. Yeah. I I mean, the problem with Finnegan is that he has been up and down and like there isn't that like excellence from him. But, you know, not everyone is going to be excellent. And there's something to be said for a guy who stays healthy and eats up innings and who can be really good. And Finnegan at times has been really good. And so you obviously, you know, don't kick guys like that to the curb, especially when you have a history of having a hard time putting together good bullpens. Well, we had the trade deadline on uh, Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern. And then we had this Nats Brewers game on Tuesday night. And this did end up being a very disappointing game for the Nats starting pitcher, Josiah Gray. We have talked about Josiah Gray, how even in this overall big time step forward season, he has put a lot of guys on base and he has been pitch inefficient. And we wondered, you know, is there a market correction coming? He's done a really good job of avoiding the market correction. The ERA remains in the threes, but these problems of putting guys on base, being pitch inefficient, reared their ugly heads in this game on Tuesday night. Josiah Gray lasted for just three and two-thirds innings. He allowed five runs in three and two-thirds innings. He only gave up four hits, a double and three singles, but he issued three walks. He recorded three strikeouts. He over his three and two-thirds innings through a whopping 81 pitches, and nothing was worse Then the top of the fourth, Josiah Gray in the top of the fourth on Tuesday night allowed four runs on three walks and two, two out, two run singles. He, in the inning, 
threw 37 pitches. This was the half inning that, like, refused to end. Gray issued a one-out four-pitch walk of Willie Adamas. Gray issued a one-out walk of Sal Freelich, despite him having been down at 1.12. Gray issued a two-out five-pitch walk of Andrew Monasterio. Gray gave up a two-out two-run single by the Brewers' number eight batter, Bryce Terang, up the middle to tie the game at three, despite Terang having been down at 1.02. And Terang then had an uncontested two-out steal of second base. And Gray gave up a two-out two-run opposite field single by the Brewers' number nine batter, Joey Weimer, to right field for a 5-3 Brewers lead. That single by Weimer concluded a 10-pitch plate appearance in which he was down in the count at 1.12. So note, not just all of these pitches, but put away opportunities for the likes of Freelick and Terang and Weimer. And Gray did not put these guys away. And so this fourth inning went on and on and on. And Josiah Gray ended up not even completing four innings in this outing. This was tough. I actually thought it was pretty good for three innings. <laughs> you know, I thought he was headed for a nice, another solid start. And it's what five of the seven base runners that he allowed all came in that fourth inning. The walks, this was a little bit unusual. Usually when his command is off, it's the same thing. You can see fastballs tailing up and away, that kind of thing. This was everything all over the place. He was missing high, wide, low to the other side of the plate. He was missing with all of his pitches. He really lost it there for a stretch. And like you said, he was consistently one pitch away from getting out of that with minimal damage, if any damage, and he just could not make that one pitch. And I think they were at a point where even if he had gotten out of it, even if he got that last batter, the pitch count was such that Davey may have just pulled him anyways. You could see he started to have Machado warming once Josiah got into the 30s for that inning in his pitch count. You don't ever want to be past 35 and approaching 40 pitches in one inning. I don't care if you're young or old, you don't want to be in that position. And so I think it was going to be the end of his night regardless. And when he still couldn't get out of the inning, I think Davey had no choice but to pull him at that point. So a really disappointing way for that start to finish. And I do believe that the first three innings, I thought he was doing well, was headed for a good night. And it just completely turned on a dime there in the fourth inning. It's been kind of a weird last few weeks for Josiah Gray. Again, he overall is having a nice season. I think it's always like important to come back to that. But, you know, he had the appearance in the All-Star game and he did well in that All-Star game, if you remember. A perfect bottom of the third in facing three Texas Rangers players. But his first outing after the All-Star break was not good. 8-4 loss at the St. Louis Cardinals on July 16th. Four runs in five innings. He has had good games. 10-1 win over the San Francisco Giants at Nationals Park July 22nd. One run in seven innings. We had a 2-1 loss at the New York Mets on July 27th. Six scoreless innings. Although he over those six innings threw 106 pitches. You know, you get what we got here in this game on Tuesday night. So it's been kind of a mixed bag. Like he has had the thing of, you know, the good run prevention. And we've talked about that. But man, it does feel like every game he puts guys on base and he throws a lot of pitches. I mean, we're kind of waiting for that one game where the run prevention is there and he's pitch efficient and he doesn't put a lot of guys on base. We really haven't had a game like that in quite some time from Josiah Gray this season. Right. Where's the seven innings of one run ball on 95 pitches? You know? That's what we have not had. And there's something to be said for the consistency of not giving up a lot of runs. But as we've mentioned many times, it feels like he's always trying to pitch out of trouble. And it's a dangerous way to go about it. He's gotten a lot better at it. He's still limiting the home runs, did not give up a home run in this game. So that's good and maybe helped make it from being any worse. 
but you got to have enough quick innings and to sustain that through a start to give you a chance to go deep in games. I'm not saying this is somebody who should be giving you seven innings every time he takes them out, but it would be nice to think that every few times that it's a possibility or at the very least that he reaches the fifth or the sixth with a pitch count that is in the 70s, 80s, and at least gives him the opportunity to get there if he can finish strong. In this one, the pitch count was so high by the fourth that you knew that was the end of it for him regardless. So he's still a work in progress. He's not a finished product at all. And I was thinking about this as well. Look at all of their sort of signature young players that they're building around here, the core they're building around. Who is the player that really stands out that you're most excited about with this team and say, okay, that guy's really the future. Right now it's C.J. Abrams. Now, it wasn't him until July, essentially. There was a point earlier this year we would have said Josiah Gray, but maybe at the moment it hasn't been him. Mackenzie Gore, on any individual start, we may see that and think that, but not consistently. Cabert Ruiz has his games here and there. So while they all are showing just enough to make you get excited about them, Nobody has really stepped up and said, hey, I'm putting it all together right now and for a sustained stretch. And yes, I am the future of this organization. I think what Abrams has done this month, as we've talked about, is on that right path. And if he can continue this through the second half, we're going to be talking about him in those terms. But the rest of them, they have their moments, but we still have not really seen consistently every time out that you say, okay, yeah, this guy is really good. It's he has the potential to be really good, but he's not really good yet. Yes. Paging Dr. Dylan Cruz, paging Dr. James Wood. Those may be the two people who can provide what we're looking for there. Well, I think it's going to be interesting. Josiah Gray has done a really good job this season of addressing what had been his, his biggest problem, the home run problem. Will he next season be able to tackle these issues of pitch inefficiency and putting guys on base? Maybe, you know, maybe this is kind of a step-by-step thing and, you know, he can really focus on those issues this offseason and next season and be a lot better in those regards next season. We'll see. It was interesting in this game on Tuesday night because the Nats bullpen did a good job of keeping the Nats in this game. Four Nats relievers combined to allow one run in five and a third innings. Andres Machado, one and a third perfect innings. Amos Willingham, a run in two innings. Hobie Harris, scoreless top of the eighth. Joe Lasorsa, a perfect top of the ninth. The Nats finally, mercifully, do have a scheduled off day coming up on Thursday. I thought it was interesting, though, and you know, we have seen this a few times from Davey Martinez this season. You don't get many innings from your starter. And yet Davey doesn't have any singular reliever work for that long in the game. I mean, you had four relievers covering five and a third innings in this game. You would think your starter goes less than four innings. Some reliever at some point is going to go more than two innings. Not a single Nats reliever went for more than two innings in this game. Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly why that was the case. They were all available and fresh, so maybe he didn't feel like he needed to push anybody that far. Or maybe he doesn't trust them to give him that much if, hey, you got you know, four or five good quality outs from Andres Machado. Let's not push that envelope. Let's just take it and move on to the next guy. I liked Lasorsa in this game. He was very active in fielding his position in that inning, in a very quick inning. I thought they all did a pretty good job there. And no, you're right. There wasn't a long outing. You would typically say, okay, your starter gets knocked out early. Go to the long man and try to get to the seventh with him. And in the current bullpen, who is that guy? Is it Corey Abbott, who hasn't been that great? or that reliable. So maybe this is just a function of who they have and trying to get the most out of them. But it worked. I don't have a problem with the way it went, but you're right. That was a little bit odd, not the way you would typically expect that to go. 
And the guys ultimately did a good job. And, you know, that's what, of course, matters the most. But while the bullpen kept the Nats in this game, the offense, for the most part, did not do its part. The Nats for this game, four runs, just seven hits, just two walks. Nats did go three for seven with runners in scoring position. We had two Nats who had multi-hit games, but each of these guys also got thrown out on the base paths. So talking about C.J. Abrams and Dominic Smith. So Abrams on Tuesday night as an at-starting shortstop and number one batter, two for four with a double and a two-run single. Abrams in an at's three-run second, a two-out bases loaded two-run single to right field for a 3-1 Nats lead and yet another big hit by C.J. Abrams. Uh, Although he did get tagged out for the third out in trying to retreat back to first base, but Abrams in the bottom of the fifth had a one-out double to right field on a 1-2 pitch. And Dominic Smith, he on Tuesday night as an at starting first baseman, number four batter, two for four with two singles and a stolen base. Smith in that Nats three-run second, a leadoff infield single on a very weakly hit ball toward third base on a 1-2 pitch, and he had a steal of second base. But then Smith in the bottom of the third, a two-out single up the middle, but he got thrown out at home on a Kbert Ruiz two-out single to right field for the third out. What'd you make of these uh, base running blunders here? Abrams getting tagged out and trying to retreat back to first, and uh, Dominic Smith getting thrown out at home. Well, first, the good one, that Dom Smith's stolen base was of third, not of second. The first time in his career he had stolen third, the gasps in the press box were audible, I can tell you, at that moment. As far as the other ones, the Abrams play, it was really risky because it's a timing play. If he had been tagged out before the runner slid across the plate, the run would not count because it was the third out. So I get you're trying to like draw the throw, the cutoff, and not let the throw come to the plate. But you better be sure about that. And so it, it worked, but it was a, a close bang, bang. Could have gone the other way very easily if he didn't do that exactly right. Here's a swing and a line driving to right. Going to be base hit. One up in front of Freeland. Dickerson has scored. Racing for the plate to score a second run is Jake Alou. And over to third is Alex Call. And Abrams gets tagged out on the back pick. Throw uh, into first. Santana tags him out. Not great there, but it didn't cost them. I didn't really have a problem with the send of Smith. I know he's not the fastest runner. We've seen that despite him stealing third base in this game. But you watch the play again. It was a really good throw. It was a really good tag and I thought a pretty good slide by Smith trying to get to the outside corner of the plate and they just got him. So you know me, I'm not afraid to call out a bad send when they do it. But I think this one was worth it and it was a close enough play in the end that I'm not going to criticize the decision to send him. Yeah, Dominic Smith in this game, you know, he had that stolen base at third base. He also advanced on some wild pitches and he got thrown out at home. He was running all over the place. So over the course of this game it was kind of interesting to see that. The Nats, as expected, have called up Jake Alou. He is your Jamer Candelario replacement. The Nats on Tuesday afternoon recalling Alou from AAA Rochester. And he on Tuesday night was the Nats starting third baseman and number eight batter. And he had a hit. In fact, he had his first major league RBI. Lou went one for three with an RBI single, also had a stolen base, did strike out twice, but Alou in that Nats three-run second, a two-out RBI single up the middle to tie the game at one, and he had a steal of second base. I was glad that Alou was a starter. I really hope that we see a lot of Jake Alou starting at third base. I don't know that there's much of a point anymore with Ildemaro Vargas. And by the way, Vargas, who had been hitting well this season, his numbers have come down. He's not been hitting as well lately. Alou, though, is so interesting. So age 26 season, the Nats took him out of Boston College in the 24th round of the 2019 
MLB draft, and yet he has fought his way to the majors. I give this guy a lot of credit. He has hit his way into the majors. Alou last season, 567 plate appearances for AA Harrisburg and AAA Rochester, OPS of 871. Alou this season for Rochester, 330 plate appearances, OPS of 788. Your 24th round pick, you are handed nothing in terms of making it to the majors. The fact that he has gotten here and, you know, gotten here in four years. I mean, it's not like it took him, you know, 10, 12 years to make it to the majors. He made it here in four years off being a 24th round pick in 2019. I think that says a lot about Jake Alou. You can't even make it as a 24th round pick anymore because there is no 24th round anymore. The draft has been condensed to 20 since then. So yeah, all the credit in the world to Jake Alou, who, if you look at him, is not a physical specimen. He'll be the first to admit it. I kind of look eye to eye with him. I can't say that a lot about a major league players, but he has always been able to hit. And he's not made excuses (laughs) for any of it. He has just gone out there and done what he does at every level. He's not considered a top prospect. I think we know the Nationals have at least one, if not two, very highly touted third base prospects who are behind him, at least as far as their minor league level is concerned. But eventually they're going to be ready and they're going to get the opportunity no matter what when the time comes. But until then, this is Jake Alou's job to lose, or at least a chance to make a name for himself and show that he can be a big leaguer in the long term. Davey said he's going to play not every day, but he's going to be getting the bulk of the at-bats at third base. You'll see some Vargas, maybe a little bit of Chavis, but they understand now is the time. You might as well put him out there. And I'm interested to see how he does. When he was up earlier, it was only for about a week, and he's coming off the bench, and they actually had him in left field more than anything else. And so never really got a chance to find a groove. If he's starting four or five times a week and playing a more natural position for him, I think you're at least giving him a chance at some success. So let's see. Nice RBI single in this game. Good to see that. Need to see more of it, of course, but it's right there for him. You know, he's waited for this opportunity. He's going to get it. And now it's up to him to show that he deserves to be, you know, considered long term, whether it's as an everyday player or more likely as a utility guy. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Well, the heat, the humidity, the sky-high temperatures, uh, they all are here. And all of this is forcing your air conditioning into overdrive, leading to ultra-high energy bills. The solution, new windows from the folks at Window Nation. And Window Nation right now is offering a sensational deal to listeners of the Nat Chat podcast. Right now, no money down, no payments, and no interest for two years, plus 50% off all styles of windows. And if you call this week, you get an extra 10% off. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Again, no money down, no payments, no interest for two years, plus 50% off all styles of windows. And if you call this week, you get an extra 10% off your order, 866-90NATION or windownation.com. If you've been thinking about getting new windows, now is the time. 866-90NATION or windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Hey, Nats Chat. Beyonce is performing at FedEx Field on Saturday, August 5th. And no surprise, it is expensive. 
We can help though by using the special promo code for NatChat with the Game Time app. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for events like this one for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you would know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The same level, uh, you know, constant communication. Where Mark and I talk ten times a day. Uh, you know, during the, during these during the, the deadline, the last couple of days, we've talked twenty times a day. But uh, you know, the decisions we make haven't changed. We we do business the same way we've done uh, today as we done as we did seventeen years ago when I started. It's a, a collaboration. It's it's a it's a communication, and we you know everything we do is is uh, in, in a in a team a team effort. So uh, nothing's changed in that in, in that realm and. Uh, um, Mark's been supportive uh, of me and of us you know, throughout throughout my tenure here, and, uh, and I think uh, he's he's still he's still in that mode. All right, before we call it a show, we do want to play something for you. So you know, now that we have gotten past the trade deadline, this is kind of like an oh by the way, that's actually a really big deal. Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez are on expiring contracts. We are dancing this dance once again. It was on July 2nd, 2022, that the Nats announced that they had exercised the 2023 contract options on Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez, but neither is under contract for next season. And, you know, going through the course of this season and, you know, this Nats rebuild and how are the younger guys doing and the trade deadline, it's easy for something like this to kind of get buried. Well, now we're kind of through all the, you know, hazarai of the season in terms of like pre the trade deadline. You got two months left in the regular season. Like I said earlier, you got a third of the regular season left. And, you know, you have like this wide open space in front of you. And it's like, yeah, the top guy in baseball ops is not under contract for next year. And the field manager is not under contract for next year. This was Davey during his pregame session with reporters on Tuesday on his uncertain future. I say this every day. I'm just going to take it day by day and be where my feet are. I really am. I mean, I, I hope 
you know, and I say this all the time, is, you know, one, I love it here. You know, I love the fans here. We did some incredible things in the past here. I want to be here. That decision is not mine. So, but I show up every day and, you know, I'm doing my job and that's to try to get these guys better and I'll try to win as many games as possible. So that's all I can do, you know, so, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's been good. Look, I love, I love the Learner family. I've, I've always said that they've treated me really well. So, you know, we'll see what happens in the next you know, month or two, but I'm going to focus on just today. And uh, right now it's focusing on that six o'clock deadline <laughs> and we'll see. We'll go from there. All right. So Davey Martinez doing what he always does and what he should do. And, you know, that is say all of the right things. Be the good soldier. Do you think we will get clarity on the futures of Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez before the end of this regular season? I mean, it sounds silly to even ask that because it's like, heck, yeah, we should. But you never know with this team. We know how things are with the learners, how they wait until the last possible second to deal with things like contracts for general managers and managers. Do you think we will have clarity on Rizzo and Davey before the end of this Nats season? If it happens before the end of the season, I think it'll be close to the end of the season would be my best guess based on the history of this and how it's gone. Let's remember last time they both had a deadline in the summer to pick up an option. And so the learners couldn't wait any longer. They had to make those decisions then. In this case, there is no deadline. They just both have their contracts expire when the season's over. So that's October. And in theory, they don't even have to decide anything until after the season's over and everybody's already left town. I really hope for everybody's sake, it doesn't come to that. Remember how it went with Dusty Baker a week after the season ended, after they're knocked out of the playoffs. And he finally left town thinking he'd probably be back. And then he got the call that he wouldn't be. That was not handled well, as we know. It's easy to forget now the history here of just how frequently the Nationals were changing managers prior to Davey Martinez. It was every two years, essentially. Nobody had completed three full years. Well, Davey's now about to complete his sixth full season as manager. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Well, let's start with this. If the learners still own the team at the end of the season, and I think there's every reason to believe they still will, I don't. that would be a remarkable shift in the way things have gone for that to happen before then. If they still own the team, I cannot see why they would at this stage decide they were going to start over at either the GM or the manager's position. Where they are in the rebuild right now, don't you kind of have to let it them see it through and get another chance? So I'm not super concerned that they're not going to offer contracts to both guys, but I don't necessarily have reason to think that they're going to be ultra aggressive in trying to get it done as soon as possible. I just think the way they operate is to wait it out until they have to make a decision on something. And in this case, they don't have to make a decision until even after the season is over. I, again, I would hope they would do it before that, just so everybody can leave after game 162 and have some clarity. And let's be clear here. Those are the two prominent names, of course, at the top. But everybody who works underneath both those guys is in the same boat. And everybody who works in the organization has just been on pins and needles waiting and wondering what's going to happen. Are they going to overhaul everything or are they going to retain these guys? And then there's the question of if you do invite them both back, for how long? Are you offering them one year? Are you offering them two years, three years? Their track records suggest that they should get many years. But given the uncertainty situation at the top of all this, I would not be surprised if it's shorter term than you would think under normal circumstances. And then how do those guys react to being given offers that are maybe not as good as they want? So there's a lot there, I get. But 
I do think ultimately, barring something really crazy happening here in the final two months of the season, I think they'll both be invited back, but I don't have reason to believe that that's going to happen soon. I would imagine it's later on in the year. This, I think, is such an underrated aspect of what's happening with the Nats right now. I mean, normally when you have a rebuild, you empower the person overseeing the rebuild. And in a time of uncertainty, at least you have that certainty of, hey, this guy is leading us out of these dark times. This guy is in charge. This guy is, you know, shepherding the franchise back to greatness. Instead, what you have is, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty with our players and what we're doing on the field. And there's a lot of uncertainty with the people overseeing our players and what we're doing on the field. It's not normal. It's not healthy. The Nats are really lucky that Mike Rizzo is such to where he at least has sort of learned to work this way and operate this way, because I think there are a lot of people in sports who would have said the heck with you guys and walked away a long time ago for more contractual certainty. And, you know, there's also this regarding all of those people like under Mike Rizzo in baseball operations. We have no idea. Like, what if there are really good, bright, young people in the Nats organization who, because of the uncertainty, end up leaving for greener pastures? You know, we don't know a lot of the people beyond Mike Rizzo and baseball ops. And when I say we, it's like, you know, most fans, right? Like, you know, Mike Rizzo, you know, Chris Klein, you know, one or two other names. But it's like, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know in terms of like, who's good, who isn't, et cetera. And we'll never know, like, are there good people who leave because Mike Rizzo isn't under contract beyond this season? Are there good people who choose not to come here? Because Mike Rizzo, it feels like year to year is, you know, going one year contract to one year contract. It's not good. When you are embarking on a rebuild, you want to have at least that certainty with the people running things. And that the Nats don't have that. It's so bizarre. <laughs> and it's not the way to do this. And, you know, that doesn't mean that this can't work, but this is not how you would draw it up. And, you know, if slash when the Nats ever get new ownership, I really hope that this stops, that, you know, you get a GM, a president of baseball ops, he's good. You give him, you know, a five, six year contract. And you let him get to work and you stop with this yearly thing of will he be back? Won't he be back? Will an option be picked up? Will he be extended? This is not the way that something like this is supposed to go. And yet it's how this has gone for a really long time now. I mean, we started this podcast in the 2021 season. Every season we've had this conversation about Rizzo and Davey and their contracts and what's going to happen. That's not the way that this is supposed to be. And it's been going on since, certainly in Rizzo's case, since he got the job in 2009. I think there was maybe one five-year extension somewhere in there going back a ways. But since then, that has not been the case. Now, I do give him credit, a lot of credit here, because in spite of all that, I really do believe that he is working right now with long-term goals in mind. I don't think he is motivated by trying to do anything for short-term benefit that hurts any long-term prospects. I think he, in his mind, is trying to build a team that is better in 2024 and is ready to contend in 2025 with the resources that he's given. I don't think any of the moves he made at this deadline or over the winter suggested that he was you know, not all in or that he is more interested in just trying to squeeze out as many wins as he can right now for his own benefit to say, hey, look, I turned a 55-win team into a 69-win team, therefore you should retain me. I don't think he's thinking in those terms. I think in his mind, this is a three-year plan, five-year plan, whatever you want to call it, and he believes he's going to be here to see it through. And if he's not, he'll at least have left the next guy 
in a position where they can continue what he started. That's not an easy thing to do. I've seen other GMs in the past and other sports and even with this franchise sometimes put the long-term benefits of the organization on the back burner and make moves that look better for themselves. And I don't think that's what Mike Rizzo has done here. I think ever since July 31st of 2021, he's had a plan. He's executing it. You can debate how well it's going or if it's going to be completed when you want it to on the timeline that you want. But I think he's pretty much stuck to that regardless of what his own status was within that time frame. I think what's also funny is, well, two things. Number one, I think the learners are helped out by the fact that Mike is older and is of a scouting background. And with the way that baseball general manager slash president of baseball ops positions are going, it's younger analytics background. And so, you know, there's no guarantee that if Mike Rizzo ever upped and walked, he would just walk into another job as president of baseball operations and general manager for another team. The other thing, though, is, you know, if you are the learners, it's almost like you do have to keep Rizzo because who's going to want to come here who's really good? knowing that you may be selling the team, knowing that you don't necessarily pay your executives the most money, and knowing that you play these little contractual games with your executives and managers, you know, and and dangle the carrot year to year. So in, in a weird way, Rizzo and the learners are sort of tied to each other, even though there are reasons to say, boy, a divorce would seem to be something that would might happen sooner rather than later. But if you're Mike, I don't know that you want to see what else is out there because there may not be something else out there. And if you're the learners, if you got rid of Mike, who who is really good is going to say, yeah, let me go work for those people. Like, that's a dream job for me. Like, not necessarily. So I don't know if saying that they're stuck with each other is the right way to say it. But I think there are things keeping them together. That's for sure. The devil you know is better than devil you don't know, probably in in both sides of that relationship. I think a few years ago, there was some speculation that, hey, if the Cubs job ever opened up, Mike Rizzo, Chicago native, maybe he'd want to go back there. Maybe the Cubs would try to knock his socks off with an offer. That never really came to fruition. And at this point, over the age of 60, I agree. I don't necessarily think there is another GM job for him. Maybe somewhere along the way, He actually decides he'd rather move up the ladder and just be more of a president and let somebody else handle the day-to-day operations. At some point, he's going to get to a point in his life that he says, all right, I don't really need this. But to this point, he still loves the day-to-day action of it and really guiding this franchise through what it's trying to do. And on the other side of the equation, I agree that if they did have to look for a new GM, my hunch is it would be a young, up-and-comer, first-time who's willing to take a low salary and try to make a name for themselves. And in doing so, you probably know that you're only secure as long as the learners still own the team. And if they did ever sell the team, chances are a new owner would come in and want to start over. So as we've said all along, it all hinges on the biggest question of all. But as we sit here on August 1st of 2023, and I mean, it's been a long time since the first report came out of the learner family exploring a sale of the team. I don't really know that we're any closer to that happening, and it's entirely possible it doesn't happen any time in the immediate or even long-term future. This may be on the back burner now. It's really weird and really frustrating to a lot of people, not just in the media, but people who work for the team. It's really frustrating that they don't know the answer to that question. 
You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. Should I say Twitter or X? I'm not sure anymore. But anyway, on that social media thing, you can find us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show as well, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the show, we'd love to have you on board. Hit up Tim Shover, see what we can do for you. That email address is NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to our website, NatsChatPodcast.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit TimNewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. I know. You told me you like her. Everything's going good. No, everything's not going good. I'm very uncomfortable. I have no power. Why should she have the upper hand? Once in my life, I would like the upper hand. I have no hand. No hand at all. She has the hand. I have no hand. Hand me that, would you? How do I get the hand? We all want the hand. Hand is tough to get. You got to get the hand right from the opening. She's playing a recital this week at the McBearney School. You want to hear her play? I got two extra tickets. You and Elaine could go. Yeah, that sounds like something.